It's Monday, July 11th, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and the balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Mavrotis, Senior Writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel, and Edison publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California On Your Mind. Uh, good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. We have a bit of a controversy brewing with California Governor Gavin Newsom. He and his family embarked on a vacation to Montana last week, despite the ban on state travel in big sky country because it was deemed too discriminatory for LGBTQ plus people. The governor has, den- has denied a scandal on the ground that he is paying for the trip out of pocket. His in-laws also have a home there. But when Cal Matters asked whether state funds are being used for his security, Newsom's office said we don't comment or provide details on the government's security. Uh, meanwhile, Newsom is raising his national profile on what people are speculating is the beginning of his 2024 election run uh, should Joe Biden step aside. Also last week, he trolled Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in political ads he ran in the Sunshine State telling its residents to come to California, where we still believe in freedom, freedom of speech, freedom to choose, freedom from hate, and the freedom to love. As uh, former Reagan speechwriter Ken Kashigan wrote in the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal Thursday, quote, the French laundry restaurant doesn't deliver to Wheeling, West Virginia or Canton, Ohio. Mr. Newsom's designer shirts won't fit there either. Uh, gentlemen, and I'll start with you, Bill. Um, Gavin Newsom likes to play fast and lose with the optics. Uh, will, will incidents like this set back his national uh, ambitions as they did in California last year? It could potentially, Jonathan Lee, in this regard, um, in that uh, in American politics, we like to develop profiles of candidates, uh, and oftentimes we like to take uh, character flaws and put that into the profiles. Thus, Bill Clinton becomes Slick Willie when he runs for president. Al Gore, you might remember, in the year 2000, had a problem with the truth. Uh, The press would call it uh, embellishment, but uh, Gore um, had a rather bad habit of taking credit for things that he really didn't deserve credit for. He uh, claimed that he discovered uh, the situation at Love Canal and was responsible for cleaning up that toxic mess. He claimed uh, that he was involved in the invention of the internet, you might remember. Um, I also recall that uh, at one point uh, he uh, claimed that he and his then wife, Tipper Gore, were the inspiration for Eric Siegel's love story. Uh, Gore having gone to Harvard at the same time was a roommate of Tommy Lee Jones. And so Gore claimed that he was actually the Ryan O'Neill character when in fact uh, it was not. So um, this becomes media shorthand uh, in that a candidate doesn't have has a problem with the truth. And this is the challenge for Newsom because it does follow a bit of a disturbing pattern. When he was first confronted about the French Laundry back in, I think it was November of 2020, um, he didn't deny going to the French Laundry, but he just, uh, he, he wasn't fully truthful. He claimed that, uh, uh, his, his people claimed that it was an outdoor event when in fact he was sitting indoors in violation of policy. At the same time, he's telling people not to go out and, and have a life, basically. Then um, he said that no uh, protocols were violated. And then, of course, a photo shows up of him sitting there eating, not wearing a mask. And so it's the old adage that it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. And this gets to the problem with Montana. Um, His people are right. Uh, He's on a family trip, so the ban does not apply to him. Uh, You noted uh, correctly that his office did not have a response when they're asked about, well, gee, what about paying for a security detail? Uh, I would read that as meaning that they got nailed on that one. But again, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. And this is what sparked the problem here. When the governor of California travels out of state, it's an issue because when the governor leads the state physically, uh, lieutenant governor becomes the acting governor, in this case, Lady Kunalakis, and she has the full powers of office and she can sign measures and do executive orders and all kinds of things. Uh, it's an antiquated notion that needs to be revisited um, because a governor can do his job 24-7 wherever he is in the world these days. Um, but in the past, when Newsom and his family have traveled, they have told the world that they're going to be in the following countries for the following dates. They did this when they went to Central and South America. Uh, they did this last year when they did a Thanksgiving vacation in Mexico. This time, though, on July the 1st, the, pre- the governor's press office just put on relief saying the governor will be out of the state. 
And I think they just calculated that a very lazy press corps will not bother to ask, well, gee, where did he go? Finally, one publication, Cal Matters, uh, did ask, and they said Montana. And so, aha, Montana's on the list of 22 states. You mentioned that California has a state travel ban. So that tells me that the Newsom uh, operation knew that it had a problem. So it was basically just trying to avoid it by not telling. And again, this becomes a metaphor, you, a metaphor if you're going to run for office when you just aren't truthful. And, you know, people may scoff at that, but look, the French laundry thing has stuck with people. You mentioned Ken Kachigian wrote about it recently. Saturday Night Live mocked it. That's a kind of thing that sticks with people. And so if the governor does indeed want to run for president, if he wants to be national, he's going to have to do a better job of making sure that his actions meet his rhetoric and that he's not forever caught in little acts of hypocrisy. Lee, Lee what do you think? Um, Bill, um, I think Gavin could take a lesson from, from quarterback Tom Brady. You know, this reminds me of a case where Brady throws a pass and it almost gets intercepted. It doesn't. Brady doesn't throw that same pass again. Gavin seems to make the same mistake time and again. So the French laundry was damaging. And here he is trying to quietly step over the over the uh, over the stepping stones and go to Montana and not have anybody notice it. Um, and yes, of course, um, I shouldn't say of course, but I'm pretty certain I'm pretty sure state money is being used um, to pay for his security detail. I mean, these yeah. are public employees. Um, so again, Gavin is violating the rules, and it just seems it was so easy for him um, to simply have paid privately for this stuff. Um, and it really brings to the front the idea of just how silly this travel ban is. Um, I mean, Bill, I can't remember how many states are involved here. Um, 22, but there's a, 22 now. 22 states. Um, California is roughly the sixth, word, the, the sixth largest economy in the world um, with lots of business with those 22 other states. I mean, just think about how many government agencies, uh, state and local government agencies have different types of business relationships with uh, either businesses or government agencies in all these other states. And now suddenly you're throwing a wrench into the jet, into the, uh, the, the, the jet engine of the airplane um, and saying, oh, we've got you know, thousands of people that need to go to Tennessee or Louisiana or Mississippi for various types of reasons because there are businesses there that we are engaged in commerce with. And now suddenly they, they can't get there. Um, and we, if we think about, you know, in whose interest is this? Um, it's in no one's interest. It's not in the interest of the California taxpayer. We can't get business we need to have done. We can't get that done. Um, it, uh, it's damaging the people of the states of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Ohio, and Tennessee. Um, this is just virtue signaling at its best. But, you know, virtue signaling is what Gavin is really, really, is really, really good at. Um, but again, you know, he just made such, um, such a simple a mistake that was so simple and obvious that it shouldn't have been made. You wonder about who is advising him on these things. Um, and, you know, it's not just the French Laundry. It's not just going to Montana and trying to fly under the radar about doing that. It's also his, uh, you know, his statements um, regarding school, school closures and telling parents, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm the dad of, of, I don't know, I think he has three children. Yeah, I'm the father of three. I feel your pain regarding Zoom and school closures. Well, no, all those kids were in private schools. He, right. the, the Newsom family was not being impacted directly whatsoever by these school closures. So again, uh, you know, Gavin is Gavin and, uh, you know, he just can't seem to help himself. And you really worry, you know, going beyond this, you know, this silly stuff about going to a restaurant and not telling the truth and going right. to Montana and not telling the truth. You worry about, you know, is, is he really a good decision maker? Um, when push comes to shove, is he going to make the right call? Is he going to hire the people to give them the right advice and listen to them? And you look at these episodes and the answers to all those questions are no. Yeah, so um, I think one thing that speaks to Lee and Jonathan is, uh, I always like to point to this, it's a lack of competition in California politics. 
if this were a governor who's up for re-election this fall, and if Lee and Jonathan, if he were in a race right now, it were five points or less, I'm probably going to wager you dollars to donuts. He's vacationing in California. He's not going to Montana. He's going to he's going to stay in state and spend his hard-earned vacation dollars here in California. Maybe not go to Yosemite right now for obvious fire reasons, but just stay in the state and not go out of state. Um, but I think the problem is this, is he looks to be a national player. His brand right now, as Lee mentioned correctly, it's piety. Uh, you look at that Florida ad, he is not saying come to California because we do X, Y, and Z in terms of certain policies. It's all about we stand for freedom. I mean, you can hear the George Michael song in the background pretty much. Um, just We're just a superior state. We're just morally superior. People don't like scolds to begin with, and people especially don't like scolds when they don't live up to their words and they live by different standards. You know, again, going back to Bill Clinton, who obviously had problems a lot with the truth and ever, you know, Clinton was just that classic case of the kid who you'd ask him a question, he wouldn't tell you the truth. It'd take three or four, you know, bites out of the apple to get the full truth uh, out of him. But the thing about Clinton, at least when he ran for office, he wasn't running as a scold or, you know, as some sort of, you know, great figure of piety. He was running on issues. And if Newsom's going to make piety his brand, he's in trouble. Uh, That said, uh, if you want to shift and talk about the Florida uh, thing for a minute, uh, this is a very smart move on Newsom's part in this regard. He spent $100,000 running an ad that appeared on Fox News uh, in Florida. You can do this. You can buy locally, state by state, if you will. And governors have done this in California. I worked for Pete Wilson back in the 1990s. We were trying to get Washington to pay up on illegal immigration. Every time Bill Clinton would come out to the state or sometimes he'd come out to the state, we would buy an ad in either the Los Angeles Times or the New York Times. We were much cheaper, I guess. Those cost maybe 10 grand at the time. We'd run a full page ad, an open letter to the president saying, Mr. President, you promised to reimburse us for immigration what's the deal? Uh, so there's always been a bit of a gotcha, but uh, what Newsom recognized here was by doing a relatively cheap media buy, which by the way, he more than earned back probably by turning it into a fundraising vehicle. Uh, he got all of this national attention driven his way as a Democrat who dares to take on Ron DeSantis, a Democrat who stands up for his party. It comes to this time when Democrats are having something of a meltdown over Joe Biden. If you look at the New York Times over the weekend, the New York Times has suddenly discovered that Joe Biden is about to turn 80. <laughs> so now they're concerned about his age. So it plays well for Newsom. But, you know, it'll be very interesting moving forward if, uh, you know, the media clearly are are salivating for a Newsom-DeSantis matchup. I I liken it to this weekend's Wimbledon, where everybody was kind of crossing their fingers. We'd get a Djokovic-Nadal matchup, which you did not get because Nadal had to retire from the tournament because of an injury. Politics doesn't play out that way. But Newsom and and um, DeSantis would be a really fascinating matchup in this regard. It would be Florida versus California. And Lee, for all the things that you and I write about, about California, it'd be a chance for the country to have a debate about this. And with a very simple question, would you rather live in Ron DeSantis's Florida or Gavin Newsom's California? And here, Newsom's going to have to do some explaining. Yeah, he'll have to do some explaining. And, you know, when when uh, when Newsom ran these ads, uh, you know, in Florida about saying, I mean, just making statements like we love our freedom and essentially saying you don't have freedom in Florida. Uh, He went really way over the top with that. So I don't know nationally how that's going to play out. But, um, you know, what Gammon didn't say is if you come to California, you'll find just about the most expensive housing in the country here. And you better bring a big checkbook because if you plan on living in anywhere along the coast and you want to get a you want to get a conventional mortgage um, you're going to have to have roughly three hundred thousand dollars to put down on that house mm-hmm. um, by the way we don't really have water um, and the water we do have is incredibly expensive and you know by the way I just told people that mandatory water rationing is going to go into place almost certainly very soon we don't have you know we don't have much electricity um, because for all our virtue signaling about climate change and being the leaders in green energy, we forgot to provide reliable electricity for our people. And by the way, the electricity we do have is incredibly expensive. Um, our roads aren't in very good shape. Our schools are among the worst in the country. I mean, you know, Gavin didn't say any of that. Um, and Gavin is spending his time, you know, preaching. Um, he's at the pulpit and trying to preach to the rest of the country. And there are just a laundry list of issues here, which he has not addressed and which he ran on a platform of building houses, 
Well, we're about 85% short of his goal. Um, but, you know, it's a hard, you know, you might think that, um, you know, you might think that somebody who's just flipping a coin with choosing what to do could do a better job than being 85% below your goal. So, you know, Gavin is, is um, I think he's 55 or turning 55 this year. Mm-hmm. So he'll be 57 uh, in the 24 election, kind of, you know, prime time age for a presidential candidate. Yep. Um, and Bill, you know, I think your idea about saying DeSantis, Newsom, um, yeah, that could very well happen. Um, it certainly seems to be t- tilting towards that angle on the Republican side. And the Democratic side, um, Biden's approval ratings, um, I mean, they're, they're horrendous. They're nothing short of horrendous. Um, they are worse than Trump's. And you got to keep in mind that at least 5 or 10% of the people who didn't like Trump voted that way just because they said, I just don't like the guy. It's not, it wasn't about his policies or economic outcomes or international global relations. You look at Biden's numbers um, and they're horrible. And it's because of the economy It's because of, you know, failure to deal effectively with international global relations. Um, I mean, Biden can't even, he, can't, he seems to have difficulty even reading from a teleprompter. Um, yeah. He, he no longer can do that. Um, his approval numbers are in the 30s. Kamala Harris's approval numbers are in the 30s. Um, so I don't know. You look at uh, Newsom and, uh, you know, he's saying all the right things by saying, oh, you know, I have uh, less than zero interest chance on that is Kamala's turn. But he knows he knows Biden is essentially unelectable for a number of reasons in 24. And I think he knows Harris is unelectable and that he wants to be the fair haired guy. Um, is there anybody uh, who else on the Dem- I don't know, is there anybody else on the Democratic side that comes to mind that that if Biden and Harris um, aren't the ones that would be a, a contender with with Gavin? Well, this is the problem because um, you would start looking at who ran the last time. So that takes you to Bernie Sanders, who I believe is uh, two years older than Joe Biden. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, who is, I think, also in her late 70s, if I'm not mistaken. I apologize if I didn't get the age right. Uh, so these are not spring chickens, uh, exactly. Uh, I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would like to do it. I'm not sure if she is 35 yet or not. So it's a little matter of the Constitution. Um, so the obvious place to look would be governorships around America. Uh, the governor of Colorado uh, is an interesting fellow to look at. Uh, he's up for re-election this year, too. He is openly gay, which would be an interesting twist if he ran for president. Democrats love identity, so that would be his lane. Uh, and then there is J.B. Pritzker, who is the uh, governor of Illinois, who has already uh, been to New Hampshire and seems to think that he is presidential timber. Uh, he is uh, everything that Newsom is not, especially physically. If you look at the two, I, I don't want to go down that road, but uh, Mr. Pritzker is, uh, shall we say, a rather stout uh, gentleman. And so he does exactly with the telegenics. So they don't have a bench. But for Newsom to do this, though, it's it's complicated. Uh, DeSantis has one obstacle to clear, and that's Donald Trump. Uh, Newsom has two obstacles. The first one, as you mentioned, is Joe Biden. Will he or will he not run? I don't think he's going to run, but you never know. But let's take him out of the race. He's got to figure out how to get around Kamala. And he won't be able to get around her. She's going to run, I think, come hell or high water, either as, Newsom, as Biden's running mate or on her own. Yeah, it's going to be really tricky for Newsom to navigate because they are fellow Californians. They both have very deep roots in the Bay Area. They have um, they share political consultants. They share an enormous donor base. And it would be very tricky for Newsom to do this and not look like he was stabbing her in the back. And again, getting back to identity politics, um, she is a very weak vice president. She polls even worse than Joe Biden, but she is historical in that she is the first woman and first woman of color to be a vice president. Again, in a party that's consumed with identity politics, it'd be very tricky for a white male governor to say that, no, I want to shove her out of the way. Um, so we'll see. By the way, getting back to the travel ban, um, if Newsom does want to run for president, he's going to have to make sure he doesn't do official business in early primary states. Iowa is on the list of states that are banned. So if the Democrats end up in Iowa uh, early in 2024, which, by the way, is a final note here, uh, both parties are rethinking what to do with their early primary states. I think actually Republicans are locked into their first war, but the Democrats are having a very open debate about this right now. Uh, they're displeased with Iowa, which cannot count its votes, and they don't like how monochromatic that state and New Hampshire are. So they're casting about. Uh, the Democratic National Committee a couple of weeks ago did a casting call and various states showed up. 
advertising to be the first primary in the nation. And California was not in the mix. And I'm actually writing a column on this. Um, I think that Newsom ought to take this to the next step and, and offer California not as just the bastion of freedom. Let's make California the first start on the road to the White House. So every candidate could come out here and talk about uh, California's exemplar. When you think about this inside democratic politics, it's going to be interesting because you could have three Californians running for president in 2024. One would be Kamala Harris. The second would be Governor Newsom. And the third would be Ro Khanna, the congressman from here in Silicon Valley, who would be kind of the stand-in for Bernie Sanders. And so Lee and Jonathan would kind of like be pulling up to a gas station in California, to use a rather painful example, given California's fuel prices. But uh, uh, Harris would be kind of the cheap end of the blend because they talk wokeism but don't really practice it. Newsom would be the uh, would be the in-between blend because he does practice some wokeism. And Khanna would be the premium blend because he is total Bernie and total socialist. So uh, there you have it. So how about that? California is the first stop on the road to the White House. Yeah, and you know, strategically, um, you know, you noted the tension between Newsom trying to run um, with Harris as a sitting vice president. Um, do you know, I mean, within the DNC, um, do you know, I mean, they obviously know her her deficiencies and faults as a candidate, and they and everyone knows her funding dried up really quickly. Right. Um, but as a sitting vice president, does she have some gravitas in terms of bringing in money? I mean, when I look at her, I just think we know where this is going. She simply does not. She simply is not capable of drawing a critical mass and being electable. Um, I mean, maybe maybe I'm not in terms of people's perceptions, but um, I'm just thinking if California was the first stop, and she did poorly in California, um, maybe that would be the road to a quick exit from her, and Gavin enters the race um, after that, or perhaps that just wouldn't be effective for him. Well, that's actually kind of what I'm, the point of writing this, and that I'm suggesting that both California go first as the Democratic uh, side, and Florida go first on the Republican side, uh, because in Florida, then you would have a showdown between Trump and DeSantis, and that would kind of settle matters right there if DeSantis beat Trump in in Trump's backyard. They're both Floridians. That's probably the end of Trump. Uh, just as if Trump slayed DeSantis in Florida, that's probably the end of DeSantis. But here in California, if you did have this Newsom versus Harris race, you'd really get a very easy you know, early sign as to just how strong of a candidate she is. Uh, yes, even though he's a sitting governor, uh, he is his approval ratings have been going soft again. So it's not like he's a commanding figure in these heights necessarily. And she is who she is. If she can't beat Gavin Newsom in California, I think that would probably send a big alarm through Democratic circles that she is a paper tiger, the same one she was in 2020. And that could be that. So it could actually serve the nation a very valuable uh, role as vetting. But uh, the parties will always shy away from the big, big states early because why? They'll say it just favors a candidate the most money, can run media campaigns and so forth. But uh, just a thought to put out there. We're forever talking about trying to make California relevant in the process. California has for several decades now tried to move up in the process. Every time uh, we do move forward, we end up getting stuck in a Super Tuesday with about uh, 12 to 16 to 18 other states so we get overlooked. So, um, you know, nothing wrong with giving us our close up. Now let's talk about your uh, California on your mind column this week in which you would, or last week when you addressed the uh, death blow to college sports in the Golden State, and that's LA's crosstown rivals, the University of Southern California and the University of California, Los Angeles, uh, will be leaving the Pac-12 for the, for the Big Ten uh, for greener pastures. And when we mean green, we mean money. Uh, you explained that the conference, uh, that is the Big Ten, is reportedly looking at media deals upwards of $100 million annually for, for each school. And what com that comes from having, being a member um, of big media markets like Los Angeles, uh, Chicago, um, New York, and Washington, D.C. Um, you list several uh, reasons why these decisions may have uh, maybe political, um, somewhat political in nature. Could you, could you please explain? Um, well, it's uh, interesting. So if you look at the PAC-12 conference, um, the, the only one state in the PAC-12 conference voted for Donald Trump in 2020, that is uh, Utah. Uh, otherwise, the rest of the slate went for Joe Biden. The Big 12, uh, the Big 10, excuse me, where USC and UCLA are moving to, um, it's a little more mixed. I think four states went for uh, for Trump. Um, this is one reason why I think the two schools stayed away from the Southeast Conference, besides the distinct possibility of getting walloped by Alabama in football. Uh, 
that's an all Republican red state operation. All of those states are decidedly uh, Trump and decidedly Republican. But uh, uh, no, this is about money, plain and simple. And um, they are they're just seeking a bigger payoff uh, for the big pen than they get from the Pac-12. Um, and it's a shame because what it does is it's kind of a blow to California sports. Now, I mean that in this regard. And Lee can probably explain this better than me because he has a son who lives the California sports existence. Uh, California schools do not win NCAA football titles. Uh, I think the last one was U.S. USC in 2004. Uh, we don't win basketball titles. The I think that was UCLA uh, last winning one, I think around 1999 or so. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but what the California schools and Stanford's included in this, there is an incredible depth of sports excellence. And each year, the college athletic directors offer uh, a trophy to the school with the best program. And it's almost always Stanford and UCLA year, year in, year out. If you go to the UCLA website, it will claim the number of championships and how many Olympians it's produced. This is what California sports offer. Uh, what disappoints me with the uh, decision of the two Los Angeles schools to leave is it says goodbye to a lot of tradition. West Coast football has been going on here for over 100 years, but it's also kind of turning us back and saying that, you know, we'd rather have a sports program that really makes a hell of a lot of money off football and basketball than we would showcasing a program which is, you know, good at football, good at basketball, but also really good at synchronized swimming and women's beach volleyball. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's all about the Benjamins. Um, Bill, you're absolutely right that um, Stanford and UCLA, and, and to a lesser extent, USC, all of the non-revenue sports, so men's tennis, women's tennis, um, water polo, um, golf, men's and women's golf, um, you name it, the champ, you know, a lot of championships are listed among those sports um, at Stanford, UCLA, and USC. There's two revenue sports: there's football and basketball. So those really are driving the athletic bus. And the Pac-12 was um, is a bit of a strange configuration viewed from the perspective of today, um, compared to you know back in the 1960s or 1970s right. when it was the Pac-8. Uh, and before that, it was the Pacific Coast Conference. Um, so conferences in general have gotten bigger over time. The Pac-8 became the Pac-10 with the two Arizona schools. And then it added Utah and Colorado. So Pacific started having a whole different, a whole different meaning. But, you know, the Pac-12 didn't work from a financial point of view to the satisfaction of the presidents of their constituent schools. Um, so the Pac-12 conference, uh, the conference uh, commissioner was a fellow named Larry Scott. He was um, he was kind of a fast-talking tennis impresario. Um, he didn't really have a background in college sports, but I think he was, you know, he was, uh, he, you know, I, he might, you know, you might call him the Gavin Newsom of uh, of, of sports marketing. He, he talked a really good game, and they hired him. Um, the dollars never came in to the extent that that he had promised. The Pac-12 network, which is um, a pay program, um, never, Larry Scott never got a deal done with DirecTV. Uh, I think it's on Dish. I don't know if he got a deal done with Time Warner, but the Pac-12 network, which was going to broadcast all football and basketball games not being carried by ESPN or Fox or the networks. Um, the, Pac the Pac-12 network was supposed to be um, the goldmine, and it just never developed that way. It was just never got into the number of homes anywhere close to what the predictions were. So Scott was essentially fired. He wasn't, his contract wasn't renewed. Um, and then the PAC-12 went with uh, a fellow named, uh, the new commissioner is a fellow named uh, George Klievikov. I think I, I may have mispronounced that name, but he comes from Las Vegas. So another marketing guy. And then suddenly Klievikov has got to look, has got to say, my God, I'm losing USC and UCLA. What are we going to do? Um, USC and UCLA probably don't belong in the conference anymore with schools like Oregon State and Washington State, which are, you know, which are small schools. They don't have big fan bases. They're not going to be creating a lot of dollars. And, you know, today everything's getting monetized. So people want to see USC play Ohio State. Uh, they want to see UCLA basketball play Michigan basketball on a regular basis. Um, so there's a lot more money by sent. There's a, you know the 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 sports economic pie gets a lot bigger by sending U USC and UCLA um, to the Big Ten or you know Big Twelve. It's not going to be 16 teams. 
So it's not surprising it happened. Um, it's sad for us to have lived on the West Coast for a long time because there were uh, a lot of traditions, uh, USC and Stanford, UCLA and Stanford. Um, but it really is all about the money now and the name identity and likeness rules that have essentially resulted in college athletes, you know, kind of signing to the highest bidder. At some point, the NCAA is probably going to, rec- is probably going to try to regulate NIL money. Um, so not surprising it happened. It is, it is, I think it is a sad day for us on the West coast. Um, and what Washington and Stanford and Cal and Oregon are going to do, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see the extent to which the pack, you know, whatever, whatever the pack conference is, whether it'll remain a power five conference, um, or not. So the most interesting idea I saw for how to save what's left of the pack however many numbers uh, you want to put after it, would be um, a combination of Phil Knight and Apple TV coming to the rescue. Phil Knight is the CEO of Nike uh, with very cheap ties to Oregon, obviously, but also he went to business school at Stanford. It's funny. He puts a lot of money into uh, Oregon sports. Uh, he puts a lot of money into the infrastructure at Stanford University. You go to the business school, everything has Knight on it. So he could step in and uh, help finance some money. And then he could turn to maybe Apple TV and Tim Cook, who like went to Auburn, by the way, he's a SEC football fan uh, and say, okay, do you want to put, you know, the PAC 12 on Apple TV? Um, but I'm not sure it's going to play. Um, but two things to, uh, to round this out. First of all, let's go back to a second to our friend, the travel ban. Um, this is going to complicate life for the University of California at Los Angeles at some point, because if you coach football at UCLA, you are technically a state employee or you're working at a state university, you're on the state payroll. Uh, in fact, each year you look at California state employee payroll, the UCLA football or basketball coach is the highest paid person in the land. What happens, Lee, when UCLA goes to play football in Columbus, Ohio at the Ohio State University, which happens to be on the California travel ban list? I think that playing football on Saturday is probably, I don't know if it's official state business or not. We'll have to get a papal ruling from Sacramento on it, but that's doing your day job. And so I'm not sure if the UCLA coaching staff would be allowed to travel to Ohio, though I imagine they'll get a way around it. Um, but the second thing that disturbed me about this, uh, Lee, I don't want to get your thoughts on this as well, uh, to get getting you too much in trouble at uh, where you teach. I actually looked into Chip Kelly's contract. Chip Kelly is the uh, hedge football coach at UCLA, formerly at Oregon. Uh, he is scheduled to make uh, $4.6 million this year and uh, $4.8 million in the following three years. Now, that's peanuts by a lot of college coaching standards. His, uh, his uh, counterpart over at USC, Lincoln Riley, is getting $10 million a year. Uh, that's what they paid to lure him from Oklahoma. And they also tossed in a $6 million home and uh, use of a private plane. Why can't we get deals like this? Um but uh, you look inside of Kelly's contract, though, so it's four point six uh, million in salary, and then bonuses kick in Lee. So he gets a two hundred thousand dollar bonus if he wins a national championship, which UCLA has not done since nineteen fifty four. He gets one hundred fifty grand for making the college football playoff. Uh, he gets one hundred thousand dollars for winning national coach of the year. Meanwhile, Lee, if UCLA, um, in terms of academics, if UCLA's football team has a graduate success rate of 70% uh, or higher, he gets $45,000 as a bonus. So on the one hand, UCLA is going to pay him $450,000 if he runs the table and wins the national title as coach of the year. But if he keeps UCLA's graduation rate at 70%, and it was 81% in 2021, by the way, so they're lowering the bar for this, he gets one-tenth of that. So what does that say really about the school and its priorities in terms of winning versus academics? Yep, yep. Again, it's all about the Benjamins. Um, and I don't think, um, I'm not sure Chip is is too worried about the incentive, about the incentives for winning a national championship. Um, that's, um, sadly, is there my major employer? That's not going to happen. Um, slightly less, uh, slightly less unlikely is them going to the college football playoffs, particularly now that they're going to be playing the likes of Ohio State and Michigan mm-hmm. in, uh, in, in conference play starting in, um, I guess, 2025 or 2026. Um and uh, coach of the year, again, I don't think Chip's going to be high on that list. Um, so I think Chip was very happy to be uh, <clears throat> to have his contract renewed uh, at close to five million dollars a year. And it is a sad statement about um, there's a bit of double talk at all universities about you know student athletes, the student comes first and we have their backs and we're going to give them an education. 
And, you know, if you're playing, if you're playing power five uh, division one football or basketball, um, it's essentially a full-time job. The kids don't really get a chance to pick their classes. Their uh, academic counselors pick their classes for them. Um, a few years ago, um, Josh Rosen was the UCLA uh, quarterback. He was an economics major, and he was having a tough time with the major because uh, it was, you know, he it was literally a nine-to-five job. And um, and he and I chatted a bit um, about uh, about him trying to complete the major. Anyway, long story short, uh, he left after three years uh, and he went to the NFL draft and he signed a good contract because he was a top 10 pick. It, uh, NFL hasn't really worked out for him, unfortunately, but um, if he invests his money, he'll be just fine. But, um, you know, alums like to think that, hey, rah, rah, bula, bula, you know, this is great. These kids are, these kids are playing for, you know. Cardinal gold or the powder blue and gold at, at UCLA or the red or the red and white at Stanford. But um, at the end of the day, they're really more like employees. If they're really good, they're not going to come close to staying. Uh, certainly for basketball, which has one and done. Um, so yeah, it is, it, it's uh, there's, there's, there's uh, a lot of disingenuity there uh, about calling these kids, particularly the highest achievers, student athletes. Um, Kevin Love, um, NBA all-star was, uh, was in one of my classes uh, back in the day. Uh, and it was easy to see when he was in the class because he's, you know, 6'10", 260 pounds. <laughs> he didn't come off. I, he came more often than I thought he would. And I think, uh, I don't remember what grade he got, but he passed the class, but uh, you know, he was at UCLA for one year and, and, that, and then we said goodbye to him. So let's not entirely beat up on UCLA in this show, but I know UCLA is on your mind, Lee, and you wrote about, uh, about UCLA this week. Uh, Lee and Jonathan, what is this column about? What, uh, what is going on at the University of California, Los Angeles? Well, uh, so tomorrow I'll be publishing a column in uh, our uh, twice per week California on your mind series. Um, and there's a fellow named uh, Joseph Manson, who is a well-known anthropology professor at UCLA. He'd been there since 1996 and um, he chose to resign. Um, he's a fully tenured professor, you know, famous guy in his field. Uh, so it's a big loss for UCLA intellectually. It's a loss for those students taking anthropology courses. Um, Manson um, chose to resign because his department of anthropology became to him uh, intellectually insufferable. Um, a place where there was no freedom of expression, a place where he didn't feel he was welcome, that politics, if you don't, if you don't have the politics, uh, the quote, correct politics, um, your persona non grata. And he said, you know, I just can't take it anymore. Um, and he decided to leave. And part of the reason he left is that one of his other colleagues, a fellow named um, Brantingham, um, remarkable guy who was using very technical mathematical models to predict where crime might occur within a city at the neighborhood level and at the time of day. And using data that was collected by LAPD, um, crime, the LAPD uh, collected data on the location of crimes, the type of crimes, the time of day, what day it was. Uh, they provided Brantingham, UCLA anthropology professor with this data, so he was able to do actually be very effectively predict when and where crime would occur. Uh, and this permitted the LAPD to redeploy their patrol units. Um, and Brandon published a, a famous paper a few years ago in a very, very highly regarded peer reviewed journal that showed uh, just how much that this uh, prediction algorithm, crime prediction algorithm that he had developed was reducing crime in LA. And his algorithm is now being used around the world, uh, throughout the United States, around the world, including England. So the idea that we can now use advances in technology to help predict where crime will occur and then effectively reduce crime by having more police presence in those neighborhoods at the needed times, that seemed to be a big win-win, win for everybody. But according to um, his colleagues in the anthropology department, this was absolutely awful. This was institutionalizing racism and white supremacy and uh, promoting mass incarceration. And um, 
when you think about what is needed within a university for it to be effective, um, and the University of California system has been remarkably effective over time. 70 Nobel laureates, um, filmmakers such as Francis Ford Coppola, um, Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak was a UC grad. I mean, the UC system has had just a remarkable transformational impact on society because the state of California's vision traditionally was let's bring together innovative faculty and let's, and let's pair them with really ambitious, really bright students and give them the freedom to learn and create new knowledge and great things will come of this. And traditionally that's happened. But within UC and within many other universities, there's a chilling effect of if you don't have the right politics, if you don't think the way we want you to think, if you do research that we don't like for whatever reason, I mean, this sounds very Orwellian, and it is. As, as a university professor in the UC system, uh, it is very, very chilling. And what's happening is that we are losing really, really talented, talented faculty uh, like Professor Manson, who decided to say, who decided to leave UCLA and say, it's just not worth it. I can't, I can't in good conscience with my principles, I can't continue to work in this organization any longer. Lee, how would you tie this into the uh, the saga of Gordon Klein? Uh, for those not familiar with this, Gordon Klein uh, uh, teaches uh, financial analysis law, public policy at UCLA. Uh, he was uh, suspended by the school and later reinstated uh, after he had uh, rebuffed a request to give black students leniency on their final exams following the death of George Floyd. Uh, he turned around Lee and he filed a lawsuit against the school uh, claiming damages. He claimed he had been dropped from consulting jobs at law firms and other corporations and his reputation was tarnished. Uh, do you think we're going to see more pushback on the academic side from professors? Because it does seem to me that there is legal recourse. But then again, it seems to me that if you do that, you go to war at the school. I don't know how that would affect your tenure, but it seems to me that you'd probably just have a very uncomfortable working relationship moving forward. Well, that's right. So um, Manson, the anthropology professor, uh, was fully tenured. He was a full professor. He had academic, you know, he had protection. He had, he had academic protection. For him, he just said, I just can't work under these circumstances with people, with colleagues, um, with colleagues who, who don't think the way I do and don't like the way I think and are going to make life miserable for me. In the case of Klein, he was a lecturer. He was not tenured. Okay. So his contract, uh, yeah, so he was effectively terminated. Mm-hmm. And what bothered me about, really bothered me about the Klein situation is that, um, yeah, yeah, he was, he was asked to give Black students additional time. And what he was punished for was an email where he probably could have been maybe a little bit more sensitive in his response to a particular student about the situation. But he was absolutely correct in saying, you know what, we can't start giving students of a particular demographic background more time on an exam. That just, you know, where does that end? Um, And I think he's absolutely right about that. Bill, thousands of students signed a petition for him to be fired. Um, And what's, um, you know, I mean, having uh, not to date myself, but I've been teaching at the college level for 30 years. Um, I've never seen anything like this, particularly a level of knowledge among students that um, that really is doing them a disservice and really belies what they should be thinking about. Um, he shouldn't have been fired. He should have he probably should have responded to an email somewhat differently. But Bill, I'll just give you another example. Um, at UCLA, there is debate among the Young Republicans Club, as, as small as it might be, and as much difficulty as they have uh, dealing with uh, issues they find on campus. But there is debate, <clears throat> and um, and two students uh, at that debate were claiming um, that white supremacy is is uh is so widespread throughout our society that the makers of soap dispensers um you know you run into the you know, any bathroom you walk into uh they're you know you know i think some are motion actuated some are body temperature actuated but there were students uh, who actually thought that the manufacturers of these soap dispensers and also of the water faucets that are motion or temperature actuated, they thought that these devices were built uh, so that they would not work 
if a person of color put the back of their hand underneath the soap dispenser or the water faucet, but rather had to turn their hands over where their skin is lighter. And they somehow thought that this was a conspiracy among manufacturers uh, to build devices like this uh, to promote white supremacy. And I just thought, you know, this is so sad that <laughs> that um, 20 year olds um, are thinking this way. Um, the fact that it makes absolutely no economic sense, the fact that it makes no cultural sense, the fact that it makes no social sense, but they have been so inundated with a vision of the world that they're now they're now having these paranoid thoughts that businesses are out to get people of color and businesses are out to get dollars. <laughs> they don't really care so much about the color of people or what language they speak or what religion they are or uh, what gender they want to be. They're all they're yeah, again, they're all about the Benjamins. Um, so it's uh, it goes back to a deeper issue within our K through 12 school system and what, what kids are learning. And um, again, when we think about the remarkable leaders and inventors and authors and writers and playwrights and poets who come through the University of California, it doesn't augur well for the future in terms of what I'm seeing today in, on campus politics and the kind of students who are attending university. So, I mean, let's uh, move up to uh, San Francisco, um, closer to where you are, Bill. Uh, in the San Francisco Chronicle, business reporter Roland Lee interviews San Francisco's chief economist, Ted Egan, who fears that the Federal Reserve's plan to raise interest rates will trigger a recession and greatly impact the tech sector, uh, which has helped keep the Bay Area economy afloat since the start of the pandemic. Uh, Lee notes that San Francisco's percentage of workers back in the office is the lowest among major U.S. cities and office space available for leases around 20% and consumer sentiment hit a record low in June and, and the housing market has also cooled. All this is to say, um, as Roland Lee noted in the article, the roads aren't paved with gold in the Golden City. Uh, Lee, what do you think happens to San Francisco's economy this year? Uh, can they have a rebound? Yeah, San Francisco's in trouble. Um, the, number of square, the number of vacant square feet of office space has risen by about 300%. Rents are plummeting. Um, BART ridership, the uh, the city subway ridership is down um, 80%. And again, these the numbers I'm quoting you are from first quarter of 2022. These are not pandemic depth, uh, depth numbers. The number of office workers uh, who have come back to work um, is down, I believe, about 70%. Conventions are way, way down. Uh, tourism is way, way down. Now, many major cities are facing challenges getting people back, but none of them are having, no, no major cities are having the kind of trouble that San Francisco is having. Um, you know, San Francisco had a business model that now, that worked well for a long time, but now because of the problems that are rough, that are largely self-inflicted regarding um, permitting and really encouraging drug abuse and homelessness and the crime that comes along with that, people don't want to go back. Um, workers are happy. A lot of San Francisco workers are incredibly, uh, are very, very talented, highly educated. Um, they can work very effectively from home or somewhere else. Um, they're, not, they're not that anxious to come back to San Francisco that's unsafe and dirty and not clean. Um, conventions don't want to go to San Francisco anymore. And this was a problem that was occurring before the pandemic. Uh, between 2017 and 2019, San Francisco lost, I think, two to three really large conventions. I mean, conventions worth over $100 million to the city uh, because the convention planner said, you know, our, our attendees don't want to go. They don't, you know, it's, it's not clean. They don't find it safe. They don't want to step over a passed out attic when they're walking down the street. Yeah, fair enough. Um, <laughs> you know, Kel Surprise. Um, so is San Francisco going to recover? Um, I mean, only if London Breed and her very difficult to work with uh, Board of City Supervisors comes to an agreement and uh, and understands that they've really got to do a 180 on policies. Um, business costs are high. Uh, homelessness is out of control. Drug abuse is way, way out of control. Um, and 
the old days of San Francisco thinking, well, you know, we're avant-garde, we're cutting edge, we do things differently, and, and, and others follow. That's no longer, that's no longer the case for a city that's now, I mean, really fighting for its life. You walk down streets, there's boarded up stores, the foot traffic isn't there. And this really builds on itself in a very negative way. Um, with boarded up stores and restaurants closing and coffee shops closing, um, not only is the economy suffering, but then tourists don't want to come. Um, conventions don't want to come. Workers don't want to return. So this is really a policy-related issue. And until Breed and, this, and the Board of Supervisors, um, uh, she, under, I think, I mean, she certainly understands the problem. Um, her Board of Supervisors either doesn't have as as good of an understanding the problem or you know are digging their feet in about some of the reforms because some of the reforms involve uh, more policing clearing out homeless encampments um, prosecuting crime uh, putting more police on the street and for some of those board for some of those supervisors that's anathema yeah so it's um so for some companies just san francisco is not a priority uh google is a very good example of this so google is spending about Uh, $3.5 billion on California real estate uh, this year. A lot of that is going to be done in construction down in San Jose. So you ask, what is Google doing in San Francisco? It uh, subleased about 300,000 square feet uh, from uh, from Stripe, which is an online payments processor. It's actually the third most valuable startup in the world. Uh, Interesting bit of trivia. But that office space is available because Stripe moved out of uh, south of market down to south San Francisco. So Google is backfilling. Uh, you look at the future of San Francisco, and um, it's as simple as looking uh, at an outfit like Wells Fargo, for example, which is very synonymous with that city in the West Coast. So uh, Wells Fargo uh, just renewed its lease uh, on Market Street in San Francisco for more than 600,000 square feet. But at the same time, Lee and Jonathan, it's selling a smaller building over on California Street. And why is that? Because it's bringing back workers, but it's only bringing back workers for about three days a week. Uh, thus, you have this very funny, very flat market in San Francisco. Uh, about a fifth of the city's uh, office market remains vacant right now. Uh, vacancy rates about 21.7%. Um, it's up from about 20% last year. And in terms of uh, moving uh, uh, office space right now, they're doing it at a discount. So I think maybe, Lee, one way to look at this, it might be the example of Chicago. If you if you go to downtown Chicago and you look at high rises, you see office buildings that have been turned into condos and living spaces. I think the, the John Hancock Tower might be the case. The Sears Tower might be the case of this too. Uh, maybe this is part of the future for San Francisco. It's going to have to look at what used to be vibrant office space and try to turn that into more vibrant living space. Yeah, I agree completely. Uh, mixed use uh, development is 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 really what people want now, um, and that can work really effectively in San Francisco. The you know cities like San Francisco, Portland, Seattle—they're um, cities that people want to be in. There's a lot of um, in the past there have been a lot of social and cultural amenities. They're beautiful cities. The weather is very nice. Um, a lot of highly skilled workers want to be there uh, in principle. Um, so this type of development could be a real game changer for San Francisco. Uh, and I mean, another problem that San Francisco faces is um, it is so hard to move the needle in terms of building or, or conversion of a property. Uh, again, this, the Board of Supervisors makes it so difficult to get permits, uh, to go through environmental processes, to go through uh, planning agencies. Um, there's a lot of pushback from local community activists who who do not want that type of change. Um, so, you know, the longer they wait, uh, the more difficult it is to come back and um, and San Franciscans, Bill, um, as we know, they voted out Chase Boudin. Um, they voted out three members of the board of the uh, schools board of uh, supervisors uh, or the school board. Um, so, I mean, voters are getting fed up with it. Um, but they're going to have to be willing to vote out their supervisors or tell them very directly, um, you've got to do a 180. Uh, we just can't take this anymore. You know, here leaves San Francisco is a victim of its own policies, its own politics, and its own lifestyle, uh, if you will. You might remember that study that came out about two years ago showing that there were more dogs than there were children in the city of San Francisco. Uh, why would this be? 
young families have kids in San Francisco and they light out for other parts of the Bay Area that have backyards and better schools, plain and simple. So if you're going to rejuvenate San Francisco, Lee, uh, and you can't do it in the way that worked for the beginning of the century, which is bringing in you know young workers to work five days a week and live off the city, you're going to have to find a lot of different ways to redesign the city and try to find to make it more, more, more family friendly, if you will. So now what does this get us into? It gets us in the issue of crime. It gets us into the issue of cleanliness and leave the issue of public education, because to the extent that you know, I know families that are raising their kids in San Francisco, they tend to go to private schools. And so you need to find ways to bring families back into the city. Yeah, absolutely. And that goes hand in hand with uh, expanding tourism, um, because a big chunk of tourism is family is family travel. And San Francisco does not have a high performing set of schools. There, there are a few high-performing schools in San Francisco, but not nearly enough. Um, the median San Francisco schools, uh, public school student is not getting an adequate education. Um, I mean, not, nothing, nothing close to it. So it's a city that, uh, you know, it has its work cut out for it. Um, and, um, and voters are going to have to be louder in terms of their discontent. Um, I think voters are also going to have to at some level, not be so Pollyannish about what San Francisco used to be, but what San Francisco is today, and that work does need to be done, and it starts with the fundamentals of providing public safety, quality schools, uh, clean streets, a living experience that's very, very different than what is going on in there now. San Francisco lost six and a half percent of its population in one year. Um, I mean, that is that is a one off um, over over decades. Detroit fell from a population of one point eight million down to six hundred thousand as the auto industry, as the U.S. auto industry was decimated. But it never lost six, six and a half percent of its population in one year. Um, that 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 should be a wake up call to breed and the city supervisors and everybody who has a state who has a stake in the future of San Francisco. Yeah, and and, uh, and they should, they, you know, days day, day zero should be now with with reforms. Six and a half percent population loss is huge, and, and that's going to put downward pressure on commercial rents, on residential rents, and ultimately on uh, on home prices. Right. And getting back to what we began the show with in terms of uh, Newsom and uh, going after Florida of the issue of freedom, uh, he can talk about virtue all he wants to, but demographics, I think you mentioned this uh, uh, as well, Lee, California lost something like 117,000 people uh, from 2020 to 2021. Florida got uh, an increase of about 200,000 people in its population. So um, the governor may call it hellish, he may call it restrictive, but guess what? People want to move there. So that's another challenge of Gavin Newsom trying to go forward with this attack on red state America. If red states are so awful, why are people moving there? Yeah, he's, um, you know, he's a little bit like the the college football coach in the fourth quarter. And, um, you know, even if you think you're winning the game, at a minimum, the other team is catching up really, really fast and everybody knows it. Uh, and everybody knows you're being dominated and you start jumping up and down the sidelines and playing the referees and throwing up your hands um, because Florida is winning right now and California is losing and everybody knows it. Yeah. And this will be an interesting use of the governor's time. So back when I worked for Pete Wilson in the 1990s, Wilson facing a, at the time, the worst recession since uh, World War II. Other recessions have since supplanted that. Wilson uh, was trying to get economic uh, incentives passed through legislature. Lawmakers balked at it. So at one point, Wilson convinced, uh, this would be Willie Brown and some other lawmakers, to get on an airplane with him and go to Chicago, I believe is where they went, sit down with business leaders in Illinois and talk about what it would take to get them to come to California. And the conversation for the next hour is just a list of atrocities that California committed toward businesses back then, many of which probably still continue to this day. The point was that Wilson wanted to wake these guys up to the fact that, look at California, you may think California is wonderful, but the view inside the bubble is not the same from outside. I'd be very curious if this governor were to actually start going around the country and try to recruit businesses, see what if any businesses would come to California. He seems to think that there is an appetite for businesses who want to move here for purely virtuous reasons. They don't care for gun control. They don't care for abortion policy uh, in red states. But 
not sure how much that moves the needle in terms of businesses, which at the end of the day, Lee, are making monetary calculations. Can, no, I, operate right. my, can I operate my business? How much is my tax? Can my employees afford a home? And so on and so forth. And I'm just not sure where abortion and gun controls figure in that calculation. No, I mean, they've got um, they've got a payroll to make and they've got shareholders to satisfy. And, um, and few businesses are in the category of... Uh, businesses like Amazon or Google or Apple that have tons of cash and have big buffers and if they want to can talk about social issues. I think the average business, the Newsom would meet out there and say, hey, you want to come to California? And they would say, well, here's how big of a check I need before I get on the moving van. Um, And I think every single conversation would say, okay, what kind of tax incentives and tax credits? How much cash are you going to put in my wallet in order for me to come there? Well, this has been very interesting and timely analysis. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for your time. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Lee. Thanks, Jess. Always fun as always. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast about governance and balanced power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. If you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hooverinst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen CA, and Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Hanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also check out California On Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mavroida sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.